Imagine your favorite food, like your favorite meal. Imagine it right now. I want you to imagine, because you got it in your head. Now imagine that someone texts you right now and says, hey, when you get back from church, that food is going to be ready, and that's what we're going to have for lunch. If someone texts you that right now, hopefully you wouldn't see the text. Um, but if you did, you'd be excited, and you'd start imagining the food and how amazing it'd be to eat it. That when you get home, you know, you'll get to have this delicious meal. And when you do get home and you open the front door, the smell would waft out. And you'd be able to smell it, all of its scents. And as you walk towards the kitchen, you can smell it more and more. And if your mouth wasn't watering before that moment, it would be now. And then you sit down and you pick up the utensils or you grab it with your hands and you take the first bite and oh, magnifique. You taste it, you can chew it, you swallow it. Oh, it's amazing. It's like in Ratatouille when he like is eating the food and the lights are going off. And it's sweet or salty or savory and it's even better than you imagined. And at first, you just had a hint of the meal. You had the knowledge of what it was and you're thinking about it and then you smelled it and then you saw it and then you finally tasted it each step progressively building to the full experience of the food and that's like how our church service unfolds if you look on the front page of the liturgy packet it says that the order of our service is specifically chosen to reflect the gospel when we gather, someone calls us to worship with the word, and we sing truth about God to ourselves and to each other, and we have uh, prayers of confession and words of assurance. And then someone stands up here and they read the passage from beginning to end. We get these smells, these hints of what's to come. And then as we go through the passage, the, the passage unfolds in the same way. We continue to get hints of what the theme of the passage is. This knowledge of like, oh, I guess that's what we're going to talk about today. And then you get a little bit more of a picture of the theme. You can kind of start to smell it and see what's happening in the verses. And then finally, there it is. We can actually see it. But sometimes when we get to that, that point, we mentally and emotionally kind of stop. We say like, oh, this is what it's about. And like, oh, I think I kind of get it. Or, oh, I've heard that before, so maybe we start to check out a little bit. Or maybe we continue to listen, but we're not really engaging and questioning and wondering how this really applies to our life. We think like, oh, yeah, I've heard this be that one before. You know, this is Gospel Life Church. We always talk about the gospel. I've kind of heard that. And maybe we tune out a little bit. But if someone put your favorite meal down in front of you, you know, you wouldn't say like, oh, Ben just had us thinking about that meal. So I've been kind of like thinking about it a lot. So I don't really need to eat it now because I kind of know what it's going to taste like. Like I've had it before, so I don't need to have it again. Like, no, if your favorite meal was right there, you would eat it. And so I encourage you to stay with me through this whole passage, even if you kind of think like, oh, okay, I think I know where this is going. Stay with me and each step along the way we're going to smell and then see and then finally taste the central theme but before we do that let's pray and ask god for help and for understanding heavenly father i thank you for your word i thank you that 
it has correction, that it, it points out wrong beliefs that we have. But it doesn't just leave us there, that it shows us your truth and points us how we can experience that truth. It gives us hope. I pray today that you would give us belief, belief in your truth and in your hope. Amen. Our passage today is broken up into five sections, but if you're making, if you're writing notes and you kind of like to outline things ahead of time a little bit, actually put down six bullet points. That's right. Five sections, six bullet points. Ooh, exciting stuff. So the first section, the first bullet point is going to be verses one through seven. And the theme is that the blessing can only be accomplished by God. The first two verses set us up. They give us the situation, this initial conflict that every good story has, right? Like, you know, what's, what's going to happen? We need this initial conflict. And this actually conflict in the first two verses is going to drive the narrative for the rest of Genesis. The setup is that Jacob is dying. This is huge. This man, Jacob or Israel, he's the central human figure of nearly half of Genesis, nearly half of this book that we've been in for a very long time, Jacob is right there and he's on his deathbed. So what's he going to do? What's he going to say? There's been all this crazy stuff that's happened in his life. So what has he learned? What is he going to pass on to the next generation? We got a hint of this last week. If you were here uh, in the previous chapter, Genesis 47, verse 9, Jacob says, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Few and evil have been the days of my life. That's, that's how he summarizes his life. He knows that he's made plenty of mistakes. He knows that he's an imperfect man. But he's not despairing about that. He's not looking back and mourning his mistakes. In verses 3 to 4, he recounts God's blessing to him. That's where his focus is on. And he still believes in the promise of God. He still believes that the promise of God will come to pass. That it'll happen. And it's important to notice how he retells God's promise. Because he doesn't repeat it word for word. This isn't a direct quotation of what God said. So I encourage you to flip to chapter 35, Genesis 35. But keep a finger on chapter 48, because we're going to go back. And I want you to listen for differences in the wording of how the promise in the blessing is first given to how Jacob recounts it. So uh, chapter 35, verses 11 and 12, and this is God talking. He says, Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then in our passage today, Genesis 48 Verse 4, if you flip back to that, it says, God said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, 
and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. In chapter 35, the beginning of God's blessing to Jacob is in the form of an imperative or an instruction or command. He says, be fruitful and multiply. The next sentence is a general statement, like this is going to happen. And then the third and final sentence is a very clear promise of I am going to do this. So the only thing Jacob needs to do is be fruitful and multiply. And then, you know, God's going to do everything else. Seems easy, right? Except it's really not. We saw in chapter, between chapter 35, where this initial blessing is given, in chapter 48, where we are now, we've seen how that imperative to be fruitful and multiply is actually up to God. That Jacob could not make God's promise happen. He learned this, which we've seen previously, and it's very clear now that he's learned that lesson. He did everything within his power to make it happen, but only God could do it. And so how does he recount God's blessings? He said, God Almighty said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples. The fulfillment of this promise is entirely on God. Jacob couldn't do it. And now it, it seems like the promise has finally come to pass, right? God promised to Jacob he'd make his descendants a great nation. He had descendants, and now they're in a great nation. They're in Egypt, which is the most powerful nation in the world at this time. And Joseph is second in command. Their family has this opportunity to mingle and intermarry with the leaders of the world. This this must be the fulfillment of God's promise. God has finally made it happen, right? Actually, no. Because in verse 5, Jacob claims Manasseh and Ephraim as his own. He points out specifically that they were born and raised in Egypt. And now Jacob is attaching them to God's promise of giving his family the land of Canaan. Egypt is not their home. Egypt is not their final destination. Egypt is a detour. Speaking of detours, I was on my way to Theodore Worth Park to meet Christian. Good to see you this morning. And if you haven't checked it out, Theodore Worth Park is amazing. Like, it really is. I didn't know this until we met like a week ago. It's really close by. It's absolutely gorgeous. There's a small lake. There's a beach there. But like the, the highlight of it is go walking in the forest that's on the south end of the park. And it is just absolutely gorgeous. And if you see an open gate into this secret hidden garden, go into it. So I, anyways, I was on my way to meet Christian. And it was just this really simple drive. I just had to drive down Penn Avenue 10 minutes. And I'm driving, and then, oh, Penn Avenue is closed. I guess there's a detour. Um... Well, actually, no, sorry, I got ahead of myself because I was driving down Theodore Worth Parkway, which cuts right through the middle of the park, and that took me on a detour, easy go on Penn, and then Penn had the detour that I just told you about. I was confused in telling my story because I got very confused quickly because then the detour for Penn was up for Plymouth Avenue. Well, guess what? Plymouth Avenue is also closed. So I was on a triple detour. 
So there I was driving around, and I just needed to go from here to here, and it's taking me way out of the way. I mean, like, way out of the way. And I just thought, like, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to make a, a turn here. Like, it's, why is it bringing me all the way over there? Well, all of the roads around Penn Avenue were completely closed. And so I was just, like, dry, I felt like I was driving around in circles. And I ro- drove this, like, between my house and down to Theodore Worth Park a couple of times in the last week just because it became my favorite park. And even when I took GPS, I just got so confused because it would tell me to go down a road that was completely barricaded. It'd be just like, all right, just keep driving. But there's like a barricade right there. Like, what am I supposed to do? And they even had signs, like if you're driving north on Penn Avenue, it has a sign for if you want to go south on Penn Avenue. So like, hey, like, are you actually wanting to go in the exact opposite direction you are? If so, take a right here. And there'd be stop signs facing the wrong way on one-way streets. Like, they just know that people are going to give up and start driving down one-way streets the wrong way. So that was my experience for, like, a five, ten-minute detour. And I have, I'll be honest, I have, like, no faith in the people in charge because I just got so confused. Even when I tried to follow the detours, there's just so many signs. And, like, if that's your job, I'm really sorry. I'm sure it does make sense. But I just couldn't get my head wrapped around it. Well, Jacob and his family are on a detour for a little bit longer than five to ten minutes. Like, spoiler alert, it's actually going to last many, 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 many generations. But what's important is that Egypt is a detour, not a destination. If they wanted to make God's promise happen, if they wanted to become mighty and strong, Egypt would be the best way. They could become a great nation and claim the land God's promised them. Like, if you want to take some land, wouldn't you want the, like, the mightiest army in the world on your side? But this journey to Egypt comes on the heels of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel trying to turn God's, trying to turn God's promise into something that they can make happen. And every time someone has tried to do this, it's gone terribly. Like every time someone has tried to be clever or crafty, like we can't help but just sigh and think like, oh, here we go again. Like when are these people going to learn? They keep trying to do this, but it just never works. But time and time again, God rescues his promise from the people's stupidity. And Jacob has been one of those people that's done some pretty stupid stuff. But due to the grace of God, the promise has stayed safe from human interference. Jacob has tried to go on plenty of his own detours, and he's finally learned the lesson. And after all that he's experienced, he knows that God works in unexpected ways, and God doesn't need human assistance. God doesn't need the greatness of Egypt to see his plans through. It's not through the might of Egypt that God will make his promise happen. Egypt is a detour, not a destination. So in this section, in verses 1 through 7, we see that the fulfillment of God's promise, the fulfillment of God's blessing, that's central to this entire chapter, is entirely up to him. Both in the past promises God has given up until now, 
to the future fulfillment of his promises, he doesn't need human ingenuity, he doesn't need human strength to see his promises through. The next section, verses 8 through 16, actually has two sub-themes I want to highlight. You know, they seem at first like these two themes from verses 8 to 16 are kind of like diverging. They're going like in these two separate directions. They're two separate ideas, but in a later section, they're going to come together. And there's this certain tension that's been building in the story of Joseph that's going to come to a head in a later section. So the first theme is of verse 8 through 13 is that the blessing is given to the undeserving. The blessing is given to the undeserving. Something happens right in verse 8 that should make us pause. Jacob says, who are these when he sees Joseph's sons? When he sees his grandkids, he said, like, who are these people? So it's possible that either he has never met them or it says in a couple verses later, his poor eyesight. But either way, whichever one is the reason, we're probably asking the same question as him. We're like, who are these guys? Because we've never been introduced them to them before, and other than knowing they're Joseph's sons, we don't really get any information about them. We can see that like Joseph is, has them on his knees, and then he has them in his arms. So they're either kids or they're babies. But that's the only information, really no other information. And it's kind of confusing, because as we've watched God's promise pass from one person to another, We've learned a lot about the people on the way. But now Jacob blesses these two randos. Uh, it's just, it feels strange, right? But it's so clear that these two little kids, that the only reason that they're being blessed is because they're Joseph's sons. They did and said nothing to deserve this. Literally. They literally did, did and said nothing to deserve this. They show up to receive the blessing and that's it. That is their complete individual stories. Their complete individual stories is that their father brings them to their grandfather and they get blessed. You know, we eventually learn about their descendants and the tribes that form from their descendants, but nothing more about them. Like, talk about two completely undeserving kids. We love to receive gifts. I mean, like, come on. Who doesn't love a good gift? When we're kids, we don't deserve the gifts that our parents give us. Like, our parents and the, and, or other people that give us things, they do it because they love us. And as we grow older, you know, we might get opportunities or put in situations we don't deserve because of the people we know. And whether we kind of take that for granted or whether we kind of like acknowledge that like, oh, this is a big blessing. We, you know, we appreciate getting good things. When someone else gets a lot of good things without deserving it, like that kind of, you know, that doesn't always feel super good. Sometimes we see other people and we get kind of jealous or we think like, oh, that person, they're spoiled or they're entitled in these sorts of things. So as we see this passage, it's just like, okay, Joseph brings his sons and they get blessed, but they really didn't deserve it at all. And you can, you can feel about that how you want. 
But we'll talk about that more in a little bit. The second theme of verses 8 through 13, we see that Joseph is a good patriarch. He's a good father. He's a good leader. And in the buildup to this blessing, a familiar situation arises. Verse 10 says, The eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Where have we seen this before? Genesis 26, 22 chapters before this, says that Jacob's father Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see. Isaac is at the end of his life. He calls his oldest son Esau to bless him. And since Esau is a hunter, Isaac asks him to go find an animal and prepare food for him first. And then after that, then Isaac will bless Esau. But while Esau is gone, Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceives Isaac. Jacob pretends to be his older brother Esau and receives the blessing meant for him. Jacob takes advantage of his father's poor sight to steal a blessing for himself. God's promise given to Abraham, passed down to Isaac, it looked like it was going to go in the direction of Esau, the oldest son. But by using deception, Jacob takes it. The younger steals the blessing from the older. And in our passage, we have a very similar setup. The parallel is clear and intentional. An old man on his deathbed, poor sight, he can't tell who's in front of him. He's about to pass on God's blessing. But this time, Jacob isn't the young man receiving the blessing. He's not the young man deceiving. He's the old man about to give it. So how will Joseph respond? Will he be deceptive? Will he change the situation somehow to his benefit? No. There's a stark contrast between his actions and Jacob's. He takes straightforward action. He places the younger son Manasseh on his left so that Jacob can bless him with his right hand. And he places the younger son Ephraim on his right so that Jacob can bless him with his left hand. It's the, the natural order of things. The eldest son receiving the right-handed blessing, the primary blessing, the most honorable position. Joseph, he's doing it correctly, right? We've seen time and again how Joyce, Joseph has avoided the mistakes of his father. He's avoided the mistake of the other patriarchs, and we want to root for him, right? And we want to root for him again in this passage. We're like, yes, he's doing the right thing. And we see him juxtaposed with the actions of Jacob. And because of his integrity, finally, after all this time, after the lies and deception and sin generation and generation, finally, after Jacob's son sold Joseph into slavery, just like, Amazingly, in the midst of this seven-year famine, finally, the promise of God is going to get passed down from one generation to the next in a normal way. Everything can go as we expect. A patriarch is going to pass the blessing how it's supposed to happen. Manasseh and Ephraim will be raised by an honest father, teaching them the ways of God. The eldest son can carry on the promise, and the younger son will help him. The two sons are there ready to be blessed, blessed in the natural order, and we can give this sigh of relief as Jacob reaches out to bless them, but then he switches his hands. Like, come on, Jake, what are you doing? I thought we had this all figured out. When he was young, Jacob used trickery 
to get placed over his older brother. And now he intentionally places the younger over the older to make a point. It's to drive home how God operates. Which brings us to our next section. God operates through grace. This repetition of the younger over the older is driving home this point of how God operates. He uses the weak to showcase his strength. He uses those unable to fulfill the promise to show how he can. And we've seen that so much. Isaac was going to bless Esau, his older son, but then Jacob stole the blessing. But God's promise still continued. His plan didn't require Esau, but it didn't require Jacob either. It wasn't because Jacob was better. Jacob made a lot of mistakes. It's in large part due to Jacob's favoritism that his other sons hated Joseph and sold him into slavery. But somehow, God used Jacob stealing the blessing. God used Joseph's situation, and he moved the promise forward. And here they are in Egypt. They're in a different land, under different circumstances, and God is still the same. He does not need this family to be strong. He does not need this family to be strong to make the promise happen. And in verses 15 through 16, in the very blessing itself, we see an important aspect of the blessing. It says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel, referring to God, who has redeemed me from all evil. We saw in verses 1 through 7 that the blessing can only be accomplished by God. So our mistakes do not impact if God can operate. God can still operate through our mistakes. And going one step forward, our mistakes do not impact how God operates. He, he always operates through grace to his children. If we're living in sin, if we're like a little kid saying like, no God, I know better than you, we'll experience God's discipline. Like a good parent, he'll give us consequences for sin so that we'll realize that actually he knows better. So, you know, in specific ways, it might look it might feel different. It might look different to us, but the overarching way in which God operates towards his children stays the same. It's still through grace. When Jacob was in the midst of terrible sin, when the promise was in jeopardy, God was still faithful. And even though they're in a great situation, making wise decisions, God is still not reliant on them. All of them are like Ephraim and Manasseh. They're all like these, these little kids. That are, they're all undeserving of the promise, regardless of how good their actions are. And Israel still knows that God will keep good on his promise. In verse 16, continuing in the blessing, it says, the angel, the angel, again, God, who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. How does he know that this is going to happen, even though he's about to die? Well, it's because he's experienced God's grace. 
He knows that it's not by merit. Going to the next section, verses 17 through 20, even the good are undeserving of God's grace. Here's where those two different themes of verses 18 through 13 converge. The first theme of the blessing is given to the undeserving, and the second, that Joseph is a good patriarch. In verse 17, Joseph, he tries to salvage the situation. Right? Jo- Israel's hands are crossed, and he, he grabs them. He grabs his father's hands, trying to switch them. Joseph, Joseph's the patriarch that's done things the right way. He's stayed faithful to God. When, he's, when he was sold by his brothers to slavers, he didn't forsake God. When he reached a prominent position, he didn't forsake God. And when he was thrown in prison for doing the right thing, he didn't forsake God. When he became second in command of Egypt, he used that position of power to forgive his brothers instead of punishing them. And we might be tempted to see him as the hero because he's avoided the sins of his father. But here we see that he doesn't still completely understand. His father is doing something to display how God relates to us. But Joseph, he's missing it. All the way through Genesis to this point, Joseph is the closest human there is to being a hero of the faith. Someone we can aspire to. Someone we can say, you know, like, oh, we should be more like this. This passage, it, it points out that even he is imperfect. That even he needs to be instructed and shown how God operates. You know, if our goal in reading the Bible is to, like, look for heroes and learn how to become a better person, then we're missing the point. You know, if we read about Joseph and we put a poster of him on our wall, like, with flexing muscles, uh, and we wake up every morning with the goal to become like him, then we've got it all wrong. If our primary goal is to become a better person or have a big impact, we're missing what's most important. We won't ever deserve God's grace. We won't ever deserve a right standing with God. In this passage, we have Jacob. He received the blessing through deception, and he didn't deserve it. He passes it on to his grandkids, who have done nothing to earn it. They're still little kids. And he places Ephraim over Manasseh. Ephraim didn't deserve to be first. He didn't do anything special. And we have Joseph trying to prevent this, re- re- uh, prevent this reversal, and he's misunderstanding what's happening. You know, despite his good deeds and his faithfulness towards God, he still doesn't deserve it. Let me tell you about George Whitfield. He was a preacher from the 1700s. And though he was English, he was best known for his time spent in the American colonies. And from his mid-20s to when he died at the age of 55, so about 30 years, um, he taught 1,000 times a year. Let me, let me repeat that. He taught 1,000 times a year for 30 years. And biographers, they'll split hairs about like what was a, a, you know, like a sermon, what was a lecture, what was a devotional, that, you know, like that sort of thing. But they agree that this man, on average, preached or taught three times a day, every single day, for 30 years. On top of traveling everywhere on foot or on horseback, 
and crossing the Atlantic 13 times in a ship. It just, it sounds, they sound like impossible numbers. But all of his biographers agree on it. Even the ones that very strongly disagree with what he spoke, they agree with the, the numbers. And when he would show up in a city or a town, like everyone would listen to him speak. And his impact on the entire region is just unquantifiable. One historian claims that other than the King of England, George Whitfield was the first person that everyone in the American colonies knew about. And God used his preaching to spark the Great Awakening, which was this revival that completely shaped the spirituality of America. And if you look at his views and what he preached, it just it seems incredible the way that he noticed what was wrong with the culture around him. The most famous eulogy when he died, the most famous thing that someone wrote about him was by a 17-year-old slave girl who just had this beautiful poem describing what a man George Whitfield was. And despite all of this, George Whitfield is undeserving of God's grace. Not even he earned it. He is just as undeserving of God's grace as anyone else. There is nothing anyone can do to deserve God's grace. There is nothing you can do to deserve God's grace. Nothing. In our very worst moments to our very best moments, we are just as undeserving of God's grace. You know, Joseph being a good patriarch doesn't give him a one-up on Jacob. George Whitfield preaching 30,000 sermons doesn't give him a one-up on us. The difference between any of us is like comparing Ephraim and Manasseh, who are both just two little kids in their dad's arm. Right? We're just we're sitting there and we've done nothing to deserve God's favor. We've done nothing to earn his grace. And so it is such good news that I can tell you this morning that God chooses to bless and give grace to those in need. Because each one of us here today, each one of us listening online, needs it. And each one of us has done and said nothing to deserve his grace. Before we go into our, our final section of this passage, I want to avoid sort of like an elephant in the passage or in the verses. It's like, why is Israel blessing his grandkids instead of Joseph? It's really strange, isn't it? It, seem, it seems really random. Well, next week, we'll be in chapter 49 with Jeremy. And in it, Israel continues the blessings. This time, blessings his sons. And their descendants, along with Ephraim and Manasseh, will become the tribes of Israel. And that's what a lot of the content of these blessings are about. Them becoming 12 t tribes united as a nation. So it's just, it's weird that there's a whole chapter dedicated to Ephraim and Manasseh. Like, yes, their descendants become two important tribes, but only two of the 12. And they're not the most important tribes. The seemingly most important tribe is Judah. Because it's through Judah that God continues fulfilling the promise. It's from the tribe of Judah that comes King David, who's this 
pivotal figure in God's plan. Like, he's the guy, right? He's a big deal. So why not bless Joseph and then focus on Judah for a whole chapter instead? Why Ephraim and Manasseh? It's so that when Judah is given a prominent place, we know that it's not because of what he has done. That he is just as undeserving as Ephraim and Manasseh. That he is just as undeserving as these two kids that have done nothing to be in their position. Judah, like Joseph, like us, cannot earn and cannot deserve the grace of God. So then what, what does that mean? How do we move forward? Well, in verses 21 through 22, our final section, we see that the only requirement for God's grace is repentance and belief. In these last two verses, we see the hope Jacob has in the return to Canaan. Egypt is not a destination. God will bring to pass what he has promised. The hope does not lie in Joseph does not lie in Ephraim or Manasseh. It does not lie in Jacob. Jacob's about to die, but he's at peace with dying. Why? He says, God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Joseph and everyone else needs to realize that it is God's doing that we should hope in. We should not place our hope in ourselves or in anyone else, only God. We are to repent of our attempts to become deserving before God. We are to repent of our, our belief that being good is good enough. The ultimate fulfillment of the promises and blessings of God come through the line of Judah. It goes down through David, but it doesn't stop there. It continues to the true hero, Jesus. He was good enough. He did enough. So if we are to hope in the promises of God, we must repent and believe that what Jesus did is enough. We've smelled and we've seen the theme of today's passage, and now we're going to taste it, literally. The Lord's table which is also called communion, is where we gather together and we declare that we are undeserving of God's grace. That the only one who lived on earth deserving of anything was Jesus, who is God himself. And this meal is a symbol of our need for God, that Jesus' body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. And when he died on the cross, it was to open a way for those like you and like me that are undeserving to receive God's grace. And this meal is for those that believe that.